You may be seated. So how many of you are enjoying the Back to the Basics series? Yes. The truth is that the Bible never stops teaching. God's word is living and active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, as it says in Hebrews 4.12. There is something for everyone, young and old, whether you've heard a story once or a million times. There is always something to glean from the threshing floor of God's word. So keep threshing because there is a harvest there. How much are you wanting, church? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for today. We thank you so much for the honor and privilege of being able to gather here on a Sunday morning, whether we're here or online, Father, that we can hear your word, that we can glean from it what you would have for us today. I pray, Father God, as we go through this message, Lord, that it speaks to someone here God, you have something for us today, and I pray, Lord, that that your word would cut to the part where we need to hear it. That we would understand that your word is powerful. It's more powerful than anything in this world. So help us to, to glean from it and to read it, and to apply it to our lives today. We thank you so much for what you've given us, and it's in your name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. So let's recap really quick. So we've gone from Adam and Eve with their sin and unrepented hearts to Abraham and Sarah and the promise of a son, and from that son a nation too numerous to count. We heard of Joseph and his snobby way of saying that he was going to be somebody today, someday, which led his brothers to sell him to some Ishmaelites and then sold into slavery in Egypt. The Lord held his promise and brought him into godly leadership where he saved his family, bringing them to Egypt and out of a famine. That family grew, and the new Pharaoh, worried about the multitude, made them slaves. And where Moses comes into the picture as a baby who was to be murdered, but got an upgrade when the princess found him, and he was raised in the lap of luxury. So through a series of unfortunate events, he fled but was brought back to free his people and bring them to the promised land. And he too was placed in a role of godly leadership. Forty years went by and only two of the originals and a new generation were allowed passage into the promised land. And their names were Caleb and Joshua. And Joshua's strong godly leadership stemmed from his obedience to God and the obedience to the ones that, that he served under. In Joshua 24:31, it says, Israel served the Lord all of the days of Joshua and all of the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. 
Are you getting the overarching theme, the thread, if you will, that is woven through so far? That the story of the Bible is God doing the impossible through the most unlikely people. He places them in places of leadership and does amazing things through them. And all because they obeyed. Praise God, there's still hope for me and there's, and there's still hope for all of us. Amen? So are you a leader? Have you ever wondered what it's like to be a leader? Or does it just downright scare you at the thought of leading anything? There's a poem by Charles Osgood, and it's titled, Everybody, Somebody, Anybody, and Nobody. And it goes like this. Once there was a team of four people named everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. There was an important job to be done, and everybody was asked to do it. Everybody was sure somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. Somebody got angry about that because it was everybody's job. Everybody thought anybody could do it, but nobody realized that everybody wouldn't do it. And it ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have done. So the moral of the story, no one took responsibility. So nothing got accomplished. There's a quote from A Bug's Life. How many have seen A Bug's Life? It's okay. You can raise your hands. Nobody's going to judge. A Bug's Life. And it goes like this. The first rule of leadership, everything is your fault. So you see, everything rises and falls on leadership. In Judges 2.10, this was the condition of the people of Israel. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And what was the result? In verses 11 and 12, it goes on to say, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served Baal. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And it ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have done. No one took responsibility, so nothing got accomplished. The book of Judges is about how Joshua and his generation didn't create a leadership structure that when he died, there was no one to take over. Joshua and the leadership thereafter dropped the ball on reminding the people of Israel who they were, where they came from, and that they had made a covenant with the Lord. They got slack on their responsibilities as leaders. And the book of Judges recounts the events of Israel, of Israel's apostasy. And apostasy is just abandoning your beliefs. And since there was no leader to give direction, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And there was no moral standard to tell them otherwise. If you have one of our New Believers Bibles, there's a little excerpt in it. On page 246, if you have the Bible, you can turn to I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's titled, Don't Do What is Right 
in your own eyes. And it says this, today's culture seems to be turned upside down. For many people, what was once considered good is now seen as bad, and what was once seen as bad is now thought of as good. Romans 1.25 says, they traded the truth about God for a lie. And so they worshipped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of all eternal praise. Amen. So to put it in modern terms, everyone was doing their own thing. Everyone had their own version of the truth. And so Israel was stuck in this sin cycle and they couldn't pull themselves out out of it and when they would come up for air from their suffocating sin they would cry out to god and god would send a deliverer or a judge and the people would live in peace and prosperity for a while and then the cycle would start all over again sin they would cry out to god repent he deliver he sends a deliverer and then it's a repeat So in the book of Judges, there are 13 judges, but only 11 are mentioned. And Gideon and Samson are the most well-known judges for good reason. Both were picked at a very pivotal moment in time to do a specific task, and that was to bring the people back in line with God. Why? Because when God pursues his people and uses unlikely people that they can look to as leaders to show that only God can do what is being done. Both of these guys, Gideon and Samson, they couldn't have been any more different in the way that they led. There are five judges before we meet Gideon, and it's important to say here that the land had rest for 40 years, and then Israel got back on the sin wagon and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and the Lord gave them into the hand of the Midian for seven years so the Midianites took over everything and that caused Israel to go into hiding they hid in the mountains in dens and caves they would plant crops and the Midianites and the Amalekites would come and devour it all and they would lay waste to the land And Israel was brought very low, as it says in chapter 6 of Judges in verse 6. They feared the Midianites because they were a large number. And their camels were even too numerous to count. But God hears their cries. But instead of sending a deliverer how he had been, in verse 8, God sends a messenger, a prophet, and reminds them in verse 9 that he brought them out of slavery in Egypt. He drove out their enemies and gave them their land. And in verse 10, the Lord said to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not worship the gods of the Amorites in the land that you now possess. But you didn't listen to me. So we read and pick up in Judges 6, verses 11 through 16. If you have your Bible, please follow along. And it goes like this. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree of Oprah. Not Oprah. It's Oprah. Which belonged to Joash, the clan of the Abyssalite. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a winepress to hide the grain from the Midianites. 
The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. But Lord, Gideon replied, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. Exclamation point. He was pretty much yelling at God at that point. Don't yell at God. (laughs) The Lord said to him, I will be with you, and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. Period. God kept his cool with Gideon. All right. So when God is calling you into leadership, here are a few things to look for. Number one, God is in control. God is in control. So he picks the time he wants to meet you and where he wants to meet you. So in verse 11, we find Gideon in a wine press, hiding from the Midianites, beating out the wheat. So see, wine presses were dug underground. There were pits. And it made no sense for a person to be threshing wheat in a wine press unless you feared something. See, threshing wheat was something that you did out in the open. And threshing is a process of separating grain from the stalk and you beat it. And the grain is barely attached, so therefore it just comes right off when it's beaten to the ground. So see, God chose to meet Gideon here to show him that he may be hiding, but he can't hide from the Lord. Number two, God doesn't see you in your present condition. He sees you in what you will become. I'm going to say that again. God doesn't see you in your present condition. He sees you in what you will become. See, in verse 12, the angel of the Lord called called Gideon, mighty hero. Or in the ESV version, it says, oh, mighty man of valor. And that word valor means army, wealth, strength. And Gideon was not able to see himself in this light. And just like Gideon, it's hard for us. To see ourselves as God sees us when we're hiding from our enemies or our problems or our mistakes or our worries or our heartache. When we are in a wine, in the wine press of our fears, God's wealth and His strength are out on that threshing floor waiting for us to come and claim what is ours. Number three, God is not scared. Of your questions. God's not scared of your questions. In all honesty, we should be ready for the answer. How, how many of you guys have ever asked, asked a question to God and you got whew, an answer? Amen? Yes, so in verse 13 and 14, God allowed Gideon to ask his questions, but Gideon got the fire hose of answers back in one simple word. And the Lord simply said, go. Go with the strength that you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. 
I am sending you. In other words, if you're brave enough to ask me why your people are in the condition they are in, then you're brave enough to meet your enemy face to face because I'm sending you, Gideon. Let's go. And lastly, the weaknesses you have are the right conditions for God's power to move. The weaknesses you have are the right conditions for God's power to move. See, in verses 15 and 16, Gideon tried to backpedal after he bowed up to God with his questions. And once he was snapped back into reality, he remembered, oh, that's right, I come from the weakest clan of the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. God, you're not, you don't need me. <laughs> There's someone else that's better fit for what you're calling me to do um, because I can't do this. And the Lord says, I will be with you, and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. See, when you give God all of your excuses as to why you should not or cannot, I've done this, that, and the other, God simply says, I will be with you. And all those doubts have to leave in Jesus' name. So Gideon goes on, and he, he gives an offering, and it's accepted. And the first thing that he's asked to do is to tear down the altars to Baal and to cut down the Asherah pole standing right beside it. So in other words, get rid of all of the idols so Israel can see that it's me, God, that has delivered them. So Gideon and his army are now ready for what's next. They set out to fight the Midianites, and God tells Gideon, the army is too great a number. You need to cut it down so that the Israelites don't boast that it was in their own strength that they won. So Gideon dismisses 22,000 men who were timid and afraid, and it only left 10,000 men. Remember, the Midianites were too great in number. And we just cut down the army to 10,000 people. All right. So we keep going. And God asks Gideon to take these 10,000 men. He says, you know what? Them 10,000 men? Nope. We need to cut it down even more. So God asks Gideon to divide these men into two groups. So they go down to the stream. And one group, I want you to put the men who cup the water with their hands and bring it up to their mouths. And drink from it. And then the other men, I want that group to be the ones who kneel and actually drink from the stream with their mouth. So there were only 300 that drank from their hands. So Gideon, again, as he was instructed, dismissed all but 300 who drank water from their hands. And in verse 7, 7, or chapter 7, verse 7, the Lord says, with these 300 men... I will rescue you and give you victory over the Midianites. How many of you would be shaking in your boots at that point? 300 men? Oh, thank you, Oliver. <laughs> so they go into battle and they claim victory over the Midianite camp. And get this. There is no sword that was used on the Israelites' part. They did not bring out a sword one time. Because the Lord was their sword. The Midianites turned on themselves. And Gideon and his army of 300 did it. 
What I want you to see here, church, is that God can give us victory, and all that is required of us on our part is obedience. Do you want to be a part of that, church? So Gideon goes on to rule for 40 years, and Israel falls right back into the sin cycle, despite all the good that was done for Israel. And you fast forward about 100 years, and we meet a man named Samson. So born to parents who could not have children until an angel of the Lord appeared to Manoah's wife and told her that she would, and that she would have a boy. But there's some conditions to this baby that need to be followed. And in chapter 13 of Judges, verse 4, it says that you must not drink wine or alcoholic drink, not have any forbidden fruit or food, and his hair must not be cut or a razor touch his head. And he will be dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth, and he will rescue Israel from the Philistines. So there are four events recorded in Scripture where it mentions the moment the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon Samson. And I'm going to just run through them really quick. So chapter 14, verse 6, it says that he ripped the lion's jaw apart with his bare hands. In 14:19, he killed 30 men, took their belongings, and gave their clothing to the men who had solved the riddle that he had put out. And the third one was... 15 chapter uh, chapter 15 verse 14 and it says he snapped the ropes on his arms as they were burnt strands of flax why am i bringing this up because unlike gideon samson knew victory he knew victory he knew what it was like to know god's presence he led with power and with strength and in a moment In a moment of weakness, he squandered the one thing that was given to him by God himself. And God's spirit left him for the first time in his life. He knew what it meant to be weak and to not have God on his side. So he was taken as a prisoner by the Philistines. They gouged his eyes out and put him to work grinding grain in bronze chains. Where did we find Gideon? Grinding grain. I can only imagine what it was like for him. But the thing is that God's spirit may have left Samson, but God never left Samson. So these Philistine rulers held a great festival offering sacrifices and praising their little G-God Dagon for the victory over Samson. And Samson was brought in so that they could parade him around. And he asked God to remember him one last time to strengthen him. And we find the fourth one. God does, and Samson brings down the whole temple with him included. Everything rises and falls on leadership. So what can we glean from Gideon and Samson? Very simply, God created you for a higher purpose. God handpicked Gideon and Samson, and you better believe that he has handpicked each and every one of you. But are you where you need to be right now? Number two, you need God's strength to fulfill your calling. With God, you're unstoppable. Without God, 
you can only go so far. Philippians 4.13 says, For I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And number three, you will face opposition while fulfilling God's word. You will face opposition while fulfilling, fulfilling God's call. So John 16.33 says, I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Sometimes we're our own worst enemy. Church, what I want you to see is that Gideon was weak and then he was made strong. And Samson was strong, then was made weak. Why? Because God is the only one who can use our weaknesses to make us strong. Not in our own abilities, but in the abilities that he gives us. You see, God sees us as the person that he has created, created us to be. He can see through the grime of life and see the fearfully and wonderfully made creation that he himself wove together. He knew you and what you would do before the foundations of the world were laid. That is how intimately you are known by God who loves you. Jesus, in a moment of weakness, was in the Garden of Gethsemane. While praying to his heavenly Father, he asked if this cup could be passed. If anyone understands weakness, it's Jesus. He knew what it was. He knew what it was to be weak. And he saw ahead. And he saw each and every one of us in this moment and in this time. And he knew that he was it. He had to be the one to carry that cup all the way to the cross. And he obediently told his father, and I'm paraphrasing, okay, dad, I'll do it. I'll do it. Right there, Jesus showed us obedience and leadership. You see, leading is not always pleasant and sometimes requires us to do what nobody else will. But everybody has a part to play. And God is calling somebody into a bigger role of leadership. And he's letting you know that not anybody can do what he's calling you to do. Is he calling you? Is he calling you into a higher calling? So Gideon was hiding in a wine press and was brought out to lead his people to victory, even though he was from the weakest clan and the least in his family. And Samson had known victory at a very young age and was brought low when he allowed pride to get in the way. And in his weakness, he asked God to strengthen him one last time, and he defeated more Philistines that one time than any other. So what weaknesses are you holding back? What weaknesses are holding you back from being the leader that God is calling you to be? Are you willing to hand over those weaknesses 
and allow God to work in and through them? Are you willing to invite the Holy Spirit to help bring those things to light so that he can make you strong in those moments? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for this time in your word. I thank you so much, Lord, that we're able to dive into your word freely, that we have the freedom to to explore your word, to navigate through it, Father God, and glean the pieces that, that connect with us so strongly right now, Father. I pray, Lord, that you are speaking to people right now, that you are hitting, um, softening their hearts, Lord, to hear this message. God, you are calling people right now into leadership. Not just any kind of leadership, but you are calling them into a godly leadership. Whether if it's a, if it's a father stepping up and being that leader or that mother in her friend circle, or if it's kids in their friend circles at school, you are calling people to step up, to do what only they can do, what you have designed them to do, Father. Pray, Father, that your call does not go unanswered today. We love you, and we thank you so much for what you're doing and what you continue to do here at the open door. And it's in your name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. So last thoughts. Pastor Steve mentioned last week that um, where is God calling you to lead? So he mentioned you are a leader in whatever circle you are a part of. So whether you realize it or not, you are a leader. A leader to yourself, your family, your friend circle, at work, at school. God is calling us into leadership. And not only that, there are going to be some battles that we face along the way. But those battles that have been set in your path can be won because God has called you to win them. There is a legacy that he wants you to leave. And are you willing to lay your fear, like Gideon, or pride, like Samson, aside and allow God to move? God is calling. And are we going to answer? Let me hear it. Are we going to answer? Yes. Let's go, church.